Think about a podcast ad about a mattress. No one needs another podcast ad about a mattress, but here's the thing. Your choice of mattress is one of the most important decisions you can make in your life. It's the same thing with infrastructure monitoring. You don't think about it often, but it's one of your most important decisions as an IT professional. So get your monitoring hosted in the cloud with Pessler PRTG Hosted Monitor. Now with 50% off monthly subscriptions for new customers for the first three months. Go to PRTG.com and use the promo code PACKETPUSHERS. That's PRTG.com with the promo code PACKETPUSHERS, all one word. Today on Heavy Networking, we're telling tales from the world of wireless internet service providers. Our guest is Bradley Thompson, Senior Network Engineer at Sky Fiber Internet out of Reno, Nevada. Nevada being a large U.S. state in the American West, right next to California. I met Bradley at Nanog87 in Atlanta, where we chatted about what he does as a network engineer, including climbing up towers on the tops of mountains to install wireless links for his network. Now, I've only dabbled in some private uh, metro wireless over the years, and I was a junior engineer at the time. So Bradley's day-to-day wireless network with long-haul shots and weather challenges and different ways to think about oversubscription and routing design, that, that fascinated me. And, uh, and I hope you're going to enjoy some of his anecdotes today, too. So let's jump into the discussion. Uh, Bradley, uh, welcome to Heavy Networking. And, and man, you work for, for a WISP, and you guys do long-haul wireless. So can you explain what the heck long-haul wireless is, the tech and the spectrums? Because I think most of us know Wi-Fi, but maybe not the world you live in exactly. So it's a good question. I mean, uh, so long-haul wireless is predominantly a full duplex solution that uses multi-band radio, or not multi-band, but like multi-core radios so that you can actually send and receive those traffic at the same time. Um, it differentiates a little bit different from your point to multipoint in that, that you actually have a radio that sends and a radio that receives so that you can get kind of those full spectrum of uh, utilization out of the channels that you have. And so and those frequencies tend to be in the license frequencies, six gigahertz, 11 gigahertz, 18 gigahertz, 80 gigahertz are, those are kind of your, your primary backhaul scenarios. And those, the shots for the, the lower bands, the 6, 11, those can can vary a lot. The 6 gigahertz are when you're trying to go really long distances. 11 gigahertz is primarily for that that sweet spot. So you can shoot, you know, I think we've got a 60-mile shot that's out there for 11 gigahertz. And we push a full gig over those wireless connectivity pieces. Uh, 18 gigahertz, a little bit shorter range. Um, but easier to get spectrum for just because of that shorter range. You're looking at, you know, uh, sub 10 mile kind of scenarios. And then the 80 gigahertz is much higher bandwidth because the frequencies are are so much higher in the spectrum where you can actually get a larger channel. Um, so you can push, you know, 10 gigs full duplex over an 80 gigahertz link, but you're looking at, you know, less than five miles sort of ranges. What's the longest range you can go? Uh, the, the curvature of the earth will get wow. in your way okay. every time. Yeah. <laughs> Not bad. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. It takes a pretty big dish and I've been standing right. in the tower before looking at this, you know, uh, radio <laughs> dish that they have from, you know, back in the military days. And it's, it's literally like 12 feet in diameter. And you're like, wow, okay. So you can literally stand inside of this radio dish. Like frying birds as they fly by in the air. I've been waiting for it. It still hasn't <laughs> happened yet. <laughs> now, you mentioned six gigahertz in there, along with 11, 18, and 80 gigahertz frequencies that you very often work with for the long-haul wireless stuff. And you described dual radios, and these are, are point-to-point shots. Uh, so dual radios, so I got one that's a transmit and one that's a receive. And this is all licensed spectrum. Is that correct? That is correct. For the long-haul stuff, it's definitely licensed is what the preference is. They do make unlicensed backhaul stuff, but again, you're going to 
obviously wind up with a whole lot more chances for interference and, and things that fall off in that, you know, because that's that's when you look at like the five gigahertz stuff, you know, your standard Wi-Fi frequency ranges or uh, 24 gigahertz. Uh, I guess one of the ones I didn't mention was 23 is licensed, but 24 is not. So how clean are these spectrums? You know, even though they're licensed, I, you know, radio waves and physics don't always, you know, o- obey like a, the FCC. So so it, most of the frequency ranges are fairly clean when you actually go and license them correctly um, because they're they're all frequency coordinated now. And if they're not, if for some reason you get a channel on, say, 11 gigahertz and you're firing and you start to see a whole lot of interference, a lot of noise on the channel that you've licensed, you can actually get a spectrum analyzer, track down where it's coming for and report it into the FCC and they'll, they'll come out. And... Oh, have you ever had to do that? We have not. Okay. Now everybody's pretty good because usually what we'll do if if we're finding that there's somebody on a channel and we do happen to figure out where they're where they're at. Typically speaking, it's when you're co-located at a at the top of a tower or something along those lines, mm-hmm. and so you know who some of your fellow residents are, and you can give them a call and say, hey "Guys, uh, you know, you're using an unlicensed dish that is is kind of bleeding into our spectrum. You know, you might have to upgrade it to you know, an actual wireless dish." You mentioned 80 gigahertz. You can push 10 gig, uh, 10 gigabits per second through that because of the width of the channel. Can you explain what you mean by that? So a typical channel size is, you know, 10, 20, 40 megahertz. And when you get into the 80 gigahertz spectrum, you can get, you know, a single channel that's 10,000 megahertz versus, you know, your standard or you know, you can get them licensed at that that 100, 2000 megahertz channel. So what you'd get is a channel that's, you know, 20 times the size of what you'd normally look at. Got it. So that the width of that channel means you can cram a lot more zeros and ones through it and allows you to get all the way up to that 10 gigabits per second speed in this case. Correct. Yeah. Use cases, man. So you've got all these point to point shots that you're doing long haul wireless with. Who is using this tech and what do they need it for? Okay. Well, I mean, so we do point to multi-point as well for your standard, you know, internet for business residential kind of pieces where it's a shared space in those pieces. Um, and yeah, for like me, me haul, hanging off the end, I could, I could put it, I could have an antenna on my roof uh, that's connecting up to one of your towers as a point to one of the nodes on the point to multi-point and get like standard internet service. Um, Absolutely. Okay. Okay. And, yeah. And I, I didn't mean to, to 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 say all you guys did was point to point, but point to point certainly one of the really right. interesting components here. No, no, no. Um, but, so, but uh, from a technology standpoint, to answer your question a little more directly, we companies that will use this primarily have larger bandwidth needs, and they're rural, or they have a lot of difficulty getting some kind of fiber into those locations or any kind of other medium. You know, one of the examples I gave was it's like a sixty mile shot that's going before a mine. And so they've got some services in town, but they're, you know, 70, 80, 90 miles out from where town is. And they need to push high bandwidth, low latency for a lot of the mining equipment. And so we have, you know, a shot that comes up to the top of a mountain. And then from that mountaintop out, you know, that I think it's 61 or 62 miles out to one of the mine sites and and pushing in from there. So mines can, municipalities, anything that's going to have a lot of, bandwidth but still needs low latency but then needs those things up right away you know it's a really good solution if you've you know ordered fiber out to a tribe in the middle of nowhere to be able to bring in a wireless shot you know within 60 days versus you know the three-year fiber build going out there kind of thing 
Uh, okay, so I hadn't, hadn't considered that, but uh, but wireless would serve the purpose of I can get this connection up and running quick because right fiber tends to take forever all the permitting process, let alone just construction itself. Absolutely, and, and, and the, you need permitting for licenses, but you do, it's literally a license. You know, here's the shot, here's my GPS locations. You know, let's get it coordinated so that we have the right to use those frequencies. And then getting the gear in, in a lot of cases, we'll already have some in stock, and then we can literally just throw it up. So that process takes, you know, a whole lot less time than even getting started to build fiber or any other kind of medium. And what kind of gear are we talking about? I assume there's some kind of tower component, antennas. What else do we need? So, I mean, your standard networking equipment is going to come into play um, because each and every one of those... One of the examples I gave Evan when we were out at Nanog was imagine doing an entire network, but just like a normal either carrier or corporate network, but then every single cable that you plug in, uh, both ends of those cables also have configurations. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what a WISP network looks like. Uh, so you've got your your standard, you know, here's my switch, here's my router. Uh, if you've got a router at the tower for those specific examples, but you're going to have your normal networking equipment, everything comes back for us down into a core. Um, we've got, you know, two different data center locations um, and we do most of our routing through uh, OSPF on its IBGP side or not IBGP. We also do IBGP, but we do OSPF uh, for our IGP and IBGP for distribution of routes, some of those kind of pieces. So it's it's your standard network look. From that perspective, um, the biggest difference being that a lot of it is routed because the network topology itself is entirely based on line of sight. So I have this connection going here because I can see it, not necessarily because this is the most ideal node for me to bring my network back to. And so what normally winds up happening in a, a larger WISP networks is it kind of looks like somebody was eating a bowl of spaghetti to make their network topology map and then they just flipped it over on the table and said here you go so, <laughs> so that's well, kind well, of why there's you. a lot of routing involved <laughs> so we got to get into some of the routing stuff and i know that i got some l2 things to ask you about that i know i remember us talking about at nanog but before we get there tower space you mentioned that that's a that's a thing and you have neighbors on the tower so how do you how do you get tower space so a lot of the times there's tower companies that own the towers or it's a county or municipality. So you're pretty much just always reaching out to whoever the owner of the tower is. So, you know, we've got stuff on you know, American Tower or some of the other ones that are around town. And, you know, you they, a lot of times, especially when there's a company that's a tower company like American Tower, they'll have a plaque or something that's there, a little sign that will have their phone number so that you can give them a call. Now, is that literally just a tower? Is that all that they they provide for you is a space at a certain elevation so that you can aim your antenna and do your thing? Or do they also give you uh, power or you know any other anything else that would be facilities related up there? So everyone is based on the tower site that you're at, but most, especially if it's an actual tower company, is going to have space and power. So they're going to have you know the, the, I want three cubic feet of space for an antenna at a height of 25 feet. And then you'd bring it in and there's usually either, you know, some areas for you to wall mount or some rack space inside of a little telco hut. And what about power? Are we talking just uh, AC, DC, something else? So typically speaking at most of the towers, it's AC, but not always. 
Um, you can run a lot of, most of what you run up the tower is almost always DC. And then you'll bring all those power supplies into that hut um, and you'll do like a common distribution. And then the buildings themselves, almost every tower site's gonna have a common ground where they're grounding all of the legs for the tower. And then they bring it back towards the building on a big bus bar so that you're able to ground all of your equipment to a common ground. And if you're going out to a, a site that doesn't have any infrastructure at all, does it, it sounds like then you would have to contract with the tower company to bring all that out before you could even start thinking about, you know, getting the antennas up and, and lining them up? Sort of, or we'll actually deploy our own solar. Oh, okay. So in, in some of these areas, we've got what well, we call them solar skids, basically. And it's, it'll be anywhere between two. And I think we've got one site that's got like 16 panels. Um, that come out and then, you know, we'll literally make a stand, have the battery sitting underneath the stands and then, you know, either do pipes off of the stands. If we're on something like BLM where we don't want any kind of permanent structure or That's Bureau of land management for folks who may not be familiar. <laughs> appreciate that. So it'll either be like attached directly to those uh, solar skids or they'll be you know, permanently affixed in some way, whether it's be a pole that you, you know, just cement in, or if we have to, we can contract and, and build towers. We've done that in a few instances. So, okay, you've got your tower space. Uh, you're putting up your antenna inside of your three cubic feet or whatever it is that you contracted for. Now, right. I, I know a, a little bit about this from like point to point shots. You've got to go through this uh, kind of annoying process of getting the antennas aligned because there's a very narrow beam of energy to get these things so that they can see one another and and, uh, and past traffic. Can you explain what that process is like these days? I haven't done it, done that for 15 or 20 years, so I'm hoping it's gotten better than since what I was working on it. Oh no, it'll still make you want to swan dive off the tower. <laughs> <laughs> there, it, it, depending on the frequency you're working with. So, so the lower the frequency, the usually, and, and again, this is usually, the, the beam width is usually a little bit wider, a little bit easier to program. Mm -hmm. and aim in so like your six gigahertz will be a little bit you know less laser focused whereas you're, you're in order to get the distances you're 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 narrowing your beams by as much as you can on the higher stuff like the 80 gigahertz so depending on the link um the license shots a lot of the times we'll we'll tell any other companies that are coming out or even if we're scheduling our guys so it's usually a single link will take roughly four hours to to aim align and get everything working correctly because you start basically on one side, you're going up, down, left, right, and trying to get the best signal that you can without hitting side lobes, which is another little fun thing you're looking at. Cause you know, you're looking at radio waves. So they're not, they're not just a straight line. So you'll, you'll end up on the tops or bottoms of, you know, the, the curve of that lobe when you're aiming things and aligning them. So mm -hmm. you get the best signal that you can. And then the other side will go and get the best signal that they can. You basically go back and forth until you're hitting your target. So whenever you do license shots, you'll have a frequency coordination sheet. So you'll know roughly based on the gain of your antenna, the brand of your radio, you know, what your frequency ranges are, that they'll know roughly what signal you're going to get on a good day of weather with no issues that are going on, what your signal should be, your ideal signal should be. So we'll go send our guys up there. And they'll go back and forth until they're really close to that. And then they'll align, depending on the radio itself, the uh, the rotation of the radio or XPIC. And is there a person literally on the tower sort of making adjustments by hand? Or is this more like remote control and a joystick kind of thing? Oh, God, I wish there was a joystick. Uh, <laughs> no, there's literally a guy sitting up there with a, you know, a harness and he's clipped mm -hmm. to the tower and he's dangling off the side of it. And 
He grabs his wrench, loosens up the bolts and, and pushes the dish around. And then somebody's like a little to the left. Now a little uh, to the right. That... <laughs> exactly. Wow. You're, you're like, okay, I'm moving right. You're like, looks better. You know, you'll, you'll basically read off the signal or in some cases you'll have the ability to align using a voltmeter. And so you'll literally <laughs> pull, plug in your voltmeter and it's measuring the, the voltage or resistance depending on the, the brand. So that, that's, a signal. that's a point-to-point alignment process. If it's point-to-multipoint, it's it's a different game you're playing because you're trying to cover an area where your subscribers are? Sort of. So when you're looking at an access point for point-to-multipoint, so a point-to-point radio, a really high-end radio, for, so you know your, your bigger brands, the carrier-grade backhaul equipment is going to have a, a narrow, very, very narrow beam width. It's like anywhere from a half a degree to two degrees is all that you're looking at. So if you looked at, you know, a, a standard circle, it's only two degrees and that's how much beam width wide your, your shot is. And so on point to multi-point, now you look at the APs and a lot of them are 90 degrees. So when you're receiving that signal, you're hitting a swath, an entire neighborhood with a 90 degree spread. So everything within that 90 degrees can receive that. So your alignment is one-sided, typically speaking. You'll be sitting at you know, the, the house or the, the business, and you're going to aim up towards that tower. You're going to swing again, left, right, up, down. But once you get the best signal, that's basically it. There's nobody on the other side because it isn't nearly as needed when you've got that big of a beam width. Yeah, that was my next question. Your subscribers have some kind of a directional antenna then for both transmission and receiving and getting the best throughput. Uh, so most subscriber units, so this is another one of those less common knowledge pieces, is there's not, typically speaking, a send and receive radio on your fixed-based wireless equipment. So almost all point to multipoint equipment is half duplex. Just like Wi-Fi, where there's only uh, one, one speaker on the air for that frequency at a time, or else you have a collision and your signal just became junk for that moment. That is correct. Yeah, it uses the same most fixed base wireless, especially the unlicensed stuff or the, the the lower end equipment, I guess we'll call it. it they're using literal Wi-Fi based chipsets. So they're just, you know, hmm. a directional based antenna with Wi-Fi. It even uses, you know, your standard WPA keys to, to log into it just like you would Wi-Fi. Now, would it be a Yagi antenna or a dish or does it depend on frequency or? Uh, it, it just depends on the frequency and, and they make them in every various piece and parts that you can think of yeah <laughs> yagi antennas are are specific frequencies typically speaking but they do make them for fixed base like yeah because you got the, the right the the antenna poles are um are specific lengths depending on the frequency that you're you're pulling in i i have a little bit of ham radio background but man my memory is uh, fading on exactly how to do that but it's it's a math problem essentially based on the wavelength that you're trying to send and receive on, you can compute what the antenna elements should be uh, should be like for its size and length and so on. Exactly. Yeah. So they do use them for some of the frequencies. It's usually very very low. So your 900 megahertz, for example. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you okay? You got all these alignments. You got signal going through the air. We're dealing with licensed spectrum a lot of times, which, as you said, is mostly clean. So what what impacts signal and makes it uh, makes it so that the wisp is having a bad day? Like weather is it bad uh, bad in the winter, but maybe not so bad in summer? Uh, birds, you know what uh, what impacts network throughput? Uh, I would say 
Power. Power is our biggest, the, the bane of the existence of, I swear, every wisp on the earth. So the weather can affect some licensed frequencies, um, but that's usually in the very high end range, like the, the 80 gigahertz, those 10 gig links. You're talking like, um, like snow and rain, that kind of thing? Yes. Yeah. They call it rain fade. So when you have a lot of precipitation, everything's based on line of sight. And so this is kind of the analogy I always give people is if you can't see the other side of where that radio is, the radio can't either. Hmm. So if you've got rain that is so dense, you can't see the tops of the mountains in front of you, your radio can't see it either. So cloud cover then too could be impactful if you're having to transmit through a cloud, which is essentially water vapor. You know, I, I bet it would, but the only scenario where I've run across that exact problem was for a company that was broadcasting to the airplanes. Ah, okay. Because your mountaintops are typically not above the cloud line. Uh, yeah, it depends on, on where you're at, I guess. Um, where I am, clouds frequently hit the tops of mountain ranges. And uh, in fact, I, I, I can hike any number of days and get undercast where I'll actually hike up through the cloud layer. And by the time I get up on a ridge line, then I'll be looking down at the clouds. That's just the topography of the particular area that I live. And, uh, and ice is another problem. Rime ice uh, from clouds going by is a thing. If you get ice buildup on antennas, I assume that's a bad thing. Oh yeah, the, we get some really bad ice buildups, but it's usually from the weather in general. So at the tops of some of the peaks, um, I was even—I think I was even telling you a little bit of a story about this. But we've we've had mountaintops that were so covered in snow that they couldn't get dozers up there, and so we ended up having to rent helicopters to get up there and uh, see what wow. happened. And and we had so much ice buildup. If you can picture this, uh, the, the radios themselves get warm as they start to broadcast and in, in over time. So a lot of times, a lot of that ice will melt off of the back of it. And it's so cold and there's so much wind that it will flash freeze mm. into a bubble around where that heat gets. So essentially water runs down into a bubble and the ice still builds up backwards past it because it's grabbing onto something that it could and just ends up with like this bowl, like the, you know, a ice bowl that sits there. And as it drips down, it'll hit the cables, for example, and then it'll grow icicles like off of your house. And then the icicles weigh down and pull the cables right out from out of the radio. So and bad weather also affect the, the, the alignment of the antenna? It can. So they make, especially for your, your backhaul radios, uh, those long haul pieces, they've got ice shields that you will typically put up on towers where that's going to become an issue, or especially if there's something installed above you on that tower where ice can build up, mm. what'll happen is the ice will break off, fall down onto the tower and land on your dish. And, you know, we've seen them cave them in or break wow. them or, you know, pierce straight through them before I've seen that. Mm. You also mentioned power as a constraint, like the, the most serious constraint you have with, with these locations. So imagine the most difficult terrain on earth in terms of bringing power somewhere. And that's where every tower site is. <laughs> it's, <laughs> you know, I'm at the top of this mountain that has a logging trail that, you know, takes you 45 minutes to drive up in the summer and there's no power poles that run up there. You know what I mean? There's no heavy. So there's generators right. that run the power for you and they can be diesel or propane. And they've got to either get a diesel truck up there or a propane truck up there. And as soon as it snows and things get blocked off, the only way would be again with a helicopter. And that's not exactly cheap to run. So if 
you know, if it has city or county power, depending on where you're at, the you'll end up with situations where if the power goes out, it's also the last location that will get repaired. Because you've got homes where you need, you know, you have residences and businesses right. and food and all this other stuff that's extremely right. important to get the power restored to. And they're like, wait, radio tower site at the top of a mountain. Now nah, we're good. So it's always the last thing repaired. Wow. So power as a problem for you then isn't having enough power. It's just having power because power is unstable in these uh, most difficult places ever to run networking equipment. That is correct. Yep. Yeah. It's not so much getting enough power because I mean, most of these tower sites, they've gotten network equipment to the point where it's efficient. You're not going to pull way too much power because you're probably not going to put the top of the rack switches or stuff that doesn't need any kind of temperature controlled environment inside of that hut. So you don't, you're not drawing way too much power. It's entirely whether or not you have it at all. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. You mentioned um, you know, snow was is an issue. What about wildfires? Um, in some cases, yes. I mean, depending on where you're at, um, the towers, we've, we've, we've seen fires that went by, but they're almost never at the tower. So they're always cleared out of all the kind of the brush and, and pieces that are there. So the fire usually, you know, if we get any, it would be a brush fire. Cause again, you want your, your towers being at locations where it's not as dense with the trees uh, just right, to make okay. things easier for those radios to go. So most of the fires end up a brush fire and there's, you know, a fence in an area cleared out around the tower. So it usually doesn't do too much damage to the towers. Now, because, the solar sites that we talked about, we've had those burn to the ground before. Uh, how do you mean what, what caused them to burn to the ground? Because there wasn't, the, the brush wasn't cleared or was there something else? Well, because it's not a tower. It's just literally us sitting uh, at, <laughs> you know, it's like a little skid. So there's just, you know, these, these, Imagine somebody that brought out the panels that go for a an RV, mm -hmm. you know, and they have like kind of, so we have a little bit bigger panels than that. They're typically for a house and we'll fold a few of them out and then we stick batteries underneath it and then it just sits on the ground. Okay. And so when fire starts to come um, and believe it or not, we have had a lot less of them ruined by fire and we've had a whole lot more of them ruined by wild horses. <laughs> Okay, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> no, me either. <laughs> I know you. You wouldn't think, and I, I don't know if they like being buzzed by the the PoE injectors or what, but they <laughs> they'll chew the cables. Or a lot of times, what we'll see is these horses like they'll they'll have an itch, and they'll literally smash their bodies against the corner of the thing, and then just be literally you know jumping up and down to scratch their their hip or back or whatever else, and they'll. They'll shove the entire skid over and misalign all the dishes, and we got to come back out there and drag it over with the truck. And <laughs> wow, yeah. So when you talk about infrastructure management, you're talking about a whole different world than the typical data center. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, we have our data center stuff. It's just we definitely have. I don't know. It's just amplified by so much when you're looking at everything that goes along outside. I have yet to hear about wild horses running rampant through. Uh, you know. The local Equinox facility. So. There's an April yeah. Fool's Day RFP for you guys to put out where you're soliciting for out-of-band management. One of the requirements needs to be resistant to wild horses. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, Bradley, I want to get into some of the networking nuts and bolts of what goes on on this uh, unusual infrastructure, at least unusual compared to what most of us deal with in enterprises and stuff where we have our lovely 
multi-tier designs and hub and spoke and things are kind of predictable and under control and and so on. Um, and and like you had mentioned to me at Nanog, things like layer two and link layer discovery protocol and stuff like that can be weird and, and other things too. So uh, start walking us through some of that. So when you're looking at, especially like LLDP or so some of these other protocols that are layer two based, uh, you're looking at an actual link that is physical. So you're looking at, you know, did the negotiations happen? Did it you know, is it a gig full or did it negotiate at half duplex or is it 10 half that kind of thing? Or did it drop out entirely? And they're physical links. Now, when you're we're dealing with wireless infrastructure, the link, the physical link that's plugged into the switch there is made to a radio that's local. And then there is a connection that's made on the radio between those two radios. So the link itself, the physical link on the switch doesn't go down. It's still talking to the radio. So stuff that you would normally be able to identify a link drop doesn't work in a wireless environment because the link is over the radio. So for architecturally, so, then the radio is, is, is a bridge, essentially. It's uh, Ethernet on the one end and wireless on the other. Absolutely. So a lot of these protocols that, that really aid in being able to work with some of that stuff just flat out don't work in a wireless environment. Um, and it's not transparent in most cases. So you have to get into much different equipment usually real high end on the the backhaul or excuse me situation like where you've got you know ci and some of these other brands that are going through where you can actually make a transparent tunnel because otherwise you're going to see those mac addresses you're going to see anything that it's advertising um and so some of those pieces especially when you're looking at ospf and costs and some of the pieces that are going along you can't just create a lag over you know, your two connections that are going to the same location, because one of those links might be 11 gigahertz and the other one might be 80 gigahertz. And your latency is dramatically different between the two links. Uh, one might drop off and not actually drop off. Yeah, it's really weird. You've got parallel links at layer two that in theory you could put into a link aggregation group if you wanted, but because they're the characteristics of each link are un, uh, unequal, you would not you would not want to do that. You'd have very unpredictable results with your traffic going through that thing. Yeah, absolutely. Let's pause the conversation for a message from sponsor Pessler. If you're a regular podcast listener, you've heard countless mattress ads. Now, Packet Pushers is not the kind of podcast where you'd hear a mattress ad, but maybe this is the closest we'll get. Now, the thing is, the only time you really think about your mattress is when it causes you aches and pains. That's why your choice of mattress is one of the most important decisions you can make. It's the same thing with monitoring. Your monitoring solution shouldn't cause you any aches and you shouldn't need to think about it. It's one of your most important decisions as an IT professional. Pessler PRTG monitoring software has been on the market for over 20 years and has over 500,000 users worldwide. Pessler PRTG hosted monitor is their cloud-based solution, which means Pessler takes care of updates, backups, and maintenance, and you just focus on monitoring. It's vendor agnostic with support for SNMP, WMI, flow protocols, and much more. Setup and configuration is quick. You can be monitoring within minutes without even installing any hardware. You get real-time dashboards and customizable notifications, and pricing is flexible. You have the choice of monthly or annual subscriptions based on the number of devices you need to monitor, so you can scale as needed. And Pessler is giving new customers 50% off their monthly subscription for the first three months. Go to prtg.com, that's prtg.com, and use the promo code PACKETPUSHERS, all one word, to take advantage of this offer. And make sure you always sleep soundly on a comfy mattress with a comprehensive monitoring tool. This offer ends October 2023. Now back to the podcast. So speaking of LLDP then, um, do, do you have a solution for how you would deal with that? You mentioned transparent tunneling along the way, but uh, 
is, I mean, how do I get LLDP so that my LLDP traffic is flowing between two radios? Or, or do you? Is that something you just don't, you don't have the benefit of what LLDP gives you? So the only time you're going to be able to successfully do that is over those radios that have the option for transparent tunneling. Otherwise, okay. you just flat out don't get to. Okay. So you, you've, you've, just, you've got to have the gear that understands this problem and will see that LLD packet come through from the switch on the one side, hit the Ethernet side of the wireless bridge, and go, oh, I've got to tunnel that thing. And then we'll grab it, tunnel it across the, uh, the wireless and then uh, decap it on the other side and send it through. So the two switches don't know there's a wireless bridge in the middle, but uh, but the LLDP uh, will make it through. Exactly, and similar to you know taking the leap from your you know Netgear router to a Cisco router at a business, it's about ten times the cost to get those features. <laughs> Which I'm guessing, if you're operating on a budget, then that sometimes those are features you just you just don't get because you're on a budget. Well, and it, it, the biggest change that we see is when you present to a municipality or something that's running some of the, the the unlicensed gear and they're like, well, what do you mean it's 15 grand to install the link versus, you know, I can go pick up a little ubiquity air fiber 24 link for 1500 bucks, you know, on Amazon or something along those lines or three grand, whatever it is in the area. But it, the the functionality of the different pieces will definitely go a long way, just like jumping over to those, you know, your Cisco or Juniper or some of those kind of companies that are coming through. So uh, help us understand what the wireless shot actually is from a networking perspective anyway. Map it to a layer. Is it is it layer two? Is it just layer one with like some layer two functionality built on top of it? How do you think of it? It's typically a layer two connection. Um, and, and the reason for that is the, you can't, traverse your typical layer two uh, through the link. So it's not a layer one connection. It has to do with negotiations itself. Okay. So do, when you use one of these links, do you treat it like any network engineer would treat a layer two connection? Like, can I run dot one Q VLAN tagging across it? You know, that kind of thing. You absolutely can in a lot of cases because it's pretty much just a, a bridge that's going between the two sides. So a lot of times you can transmit, you know, both Q and Q and your, your standard tagging and all that kind of good stuff. So. Okay. And, and would you deploy it that way? How, how do you actually use layer two and do some kind of multi-tenancy down there? Or do you have tenancy that's more like, more like layer three and maybe you're doing some kind of layer three VPNs uh, over that wireless link? So both. A lot of the times what we'll see is the, the it, we'll treat it exactly like your standard L2 connection. Um, when we do that, we are typically running them to a location that is not a pivotal point or any kind of routing decisions that need to be made. And so we just flat out go without the router in those locations. So I'm at a tower, I've got a feed in and I'm serving, you know, I have four access points that are serving, you know, 25 or 50 or 100 customers, whatever it is. But I'm not going anywhere else on the network. So there's nothing I need to actually, there's no routing decisions that need to be made. And so we'll treat that specifically as just a, your standard layer two, we'll tag all of our VLANs upstream and, and route it from upstream at the other pop. Okay, it, I, you got it. In some cases, it's just a bridge then is, is all it really correct. is. And, and, and so VLAN tagging is enough because you're doing the, the decision-making uh, magic on either end of it. You just got to get from one place to the other without a piece of cable. Well, and it is bridged. So you don't even actually have to tag. You don't have to 
uh, there is ways of doing it, but you don't actually have to do your tagging on the radios themselves. You can treat them just as like a trunk line, essentially. Hmm. I think you mentioned WPA earlier, so the traffic can also be encrypted. It is, yeah. A lot of it's it's literally like your Wi-Fi standard in most cases, especially for your point to multi-point stuff. Your point to point pieces, a lot of the times are proprietary, and you might have to encapsulate or, or set up that traffic another way. You typically have the overhead and the more expensive gear to do that, though. Okay, so like uh, a, a mining facility or something, they might want to spend the extra money. Correct. And they did. Uh, most of the mines <laughs> that we work with will will actually put the license gear in. So mm-hmm. uh, and most of it is actually for the stability and the, the need for more advanced monitoring and some of the pieces that go along. Because what they want is, you know, they're real high SLA. And so these links are more, you know, your 99.999 uptime right. versus some of the other stuff that will get a lot more affected by the rain and fade off. That makes sense. Now, we mentioned you can do VLAN tagging, you could do layer three VPNs, all depending on you know what's being terminated on either end and what your applications are. Are there other ways to multiplex that link? Like, like with optical fiber, optical networks, you can buy a wave on, on a fiber. Is there that kind of a mechanism with radio like this? Not really. Yeah. So they do and don't. So a lot of, they do have kind of a, a multiplexing piece of it, but the technology that you're imagining those the light when you're like okay i want to buy a wave that's your frequency hmm. and that very literally the same thing it's just light frequency versus radio you know your standard rf frequency and so it's literally the same exact thing you know when i pick blue or purple for a light color it's just a different wavelength or if i'm looking at single mode at that 1310 if i'm looking at uh, multi-mode and the, you know, those 800 range, those are different frequencies that are transmitted over the same piece. And in, in the RF or fixed base wireless world, those same generalized concepts are still in play, but you need something that is going to process that just like you do with, you know, DWDM or some of the other pieces, you need something that is processing that specific frequency. And when you have a radio that sits on the back of a dish, that's what's doing that processing. So if you want to utilize more spectrum, you'd put the other radio up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That's kind of what I expected you to say. I wanted to make sure I wasn't missing some uh, fancy radio trickery that was going on that would uh, facilitate some <laughs> kind of connectivity like that. Now, that, uh, the only the only real sorcery they came out with was the the timing is to set up more and more timing or to get your timing blocks more narrow and, and warm or your your modulation rates. So that when you're looking at, you can analyze more pieces of information within the same time frame, uh, and that's how you increase your bandwidth as you increase your modulation rates. I'm assuming, as far as layer three stuff, we've got uh, v4, v6, and uh, somewhere in the middle there would be uh, would be MPLS. Uh, do we have support for all of those? So, uh, in most cases, the radios themselves will not. Um, you can with some, such as your, again, your high-end carrier-grade radios. That's one of the reasons why they're so much more expensive. Um, most of the time, when you're looking at some of the your standard backhaul radio stuff, uh, you can just simply put those things in their bridge, and then you're doing your MPLS, and this is exactly what we do, uh, between the two end units. So if I've got you know, a switch or a router on both sides of that radio link, my MPLS is exchanged between those devices, not on the radios themselves. 
Okay, so Bradley, walk us through um, a typical layer one design. Uh, now, you mentioned that we've got geographical, topographical limitations on where you can put a tower because you need line of sight and all that, and these are very costly and difficult things to stand up. You can't just build the ideal design that you would on paper because that's not how maps and topography work. So talk us through a typical layer one design, what you end up with and how you're pushing traffic around. So typically speaking, what we'll do, especially now that we're a little more established, when you're starting off, you know, at first, it's literally where can I get on top of something tall and and point down into the valley and, and pick up some customers. But as you start to grow and build, what we want to do is identify the location for the neighborhoods or businesses that we're trying to target. Um, and then we'll typically go through Google Earth literally and just sort of thumb around and see what we can find in terms of existing towers to see if there's a, a co-location site from a tower perspective. And if we can find one, we'll then go put up some equipment to there. Uh, if there's no connectivity at the site, so, you know, there's, there's no fiber that's pulled up there, or, you know, we only have a few customers and we don't, we don't want to pull like an entire fiber up the mountain. Uh, what we then have to do is identify, you know, how are we going to get up to that tower? So there might be, you know, line of sight to another one of our facilities or to the top of a casino or any anything like that to try to bring that signal up to the top of there. And there's some times where you're going to have to do a multi-hop, um, as you were mentioning earlier, where you've got, you know, two mountains that I need to skip across and then it's going to go down in into the mine site or into, you know, the, the business that's out in the middle of nowhere or, you know, a power regen station, something along those lines. And, you know, past those two towers is another facility where we've brought fiber in from, you know, AT&T or, or any of the big providers that come through there. I mean, so we'll deploy in that sense. Are you seeing more appetite? I guess I'm thinking, well, I guess it could be on the the the, the business side as well, but on consumer side, given I'm thinking of all the money that the government spends or, you know, gives to the the telephone companies to pull uh, fiber out to underserved communities that somehow never seems to get there. Are you seeing more of an appetite for uh, getting connectivity this way? So oddly enough, it would be the opposite of that is what I'm saying. Oh. So we've actually been able to assist in bringing some of those services into those areas. But what we've seen a huge uptick in is throw more and more money into fiber, even in situations where it doesn't make a lot of sense. So where where wireless tends to make a lot of sense is you can add that layer of redundancy where you, you've got, I want to bring in a shot from this mountaintop and then you can have a north, south, in and out of there. Or even if you had fiber in a specific location, you can bring in a wireless shot to make that entire network more robust. And what we've seen more recently is a big push to bring nothing but fiber. So you might have, you know, a population of a thousand total for this entire city uh, or town, if you will. And what they're doing is they're throwing a lot of money in like, you know, po beyond the point of like $10,000 per home or pass, mm -hmm. whereas it would be significantly less money to to run with like a, a wireless, you know, point to multi-point scenario, or even with the backhaul pieces that we've been referencing from before to bring in those pieces so that you're not looking at, you know, that, that $100 a foot range for, for doing fiber into these locations that just doesn't make any sense. So is it just sort of a lack of awareness or telcos know that money is coming, so they might as well spend it kind of a thing? Why, why that? So it, it, the big push is actually uh, from the government side. So what it is, and this is just an opinion, it is a lot of them just flat out don't understand the technologies. 
uh-huh. they don't understand like just how robust some of the wireless has become. And all they've seen is things from the past. They have a real bad taste in their mouth. Kind of like if somebody said, I now recreated the dial-up modem and it it provides, <laughs> you know, one gig of service, I'm going to laugh, right? Because I, I, <laughs> even if it does, you're like, I'm not doing the dial-up again. I'm like, are you really going to hand me this dial-up modem <laughs> and an AOL CD and then tell me I'm off to the races? I'm going to cry. Uh and I'm sure everybody feels that, but it's the same kind of thing. So what, what happens is uh, what they're looking at is is in the past, you might be able to get, you know, a meg on these wireless links, these point to multipoint links. And it wasn't that long ago. You know, they, hmm. when you're looking at how much the technology of just our, our straight up mediums that are in between here, wireless has actually been around longer than the fiber play. But the amount of change is equivalent from both of them. The difference being that everybody had pleasant and really, really good experiences with fiber as a medium long before they had some of the more poor experiences that went along with it. Whereas wireless definitely got off on the wrong foot and created kind of a bad taste in their mouth. And is there an opportunity for WISPs to participate in the growth of satellite broadband or does that just sort of, or is that like your competition? Um, so two things. It is our competition-ish. So in most cases, your satellite connections are extremely advantageous for people that are literally in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to imagine in a lot of places in the United States, except for some of your, your bigger states that have a, a crazy amount of rural land. Right. Um, Nevada is one of those places. So we've got ranches that are built you know, 30 miles past cell phone reception in the mm-hmm. middle of a, a valley ravine that you can look past, you come up over the, the range and there's, you know, grass fields that are mowed out, but it, it's unreal. I'll take a picture and send it to you, but it's some really crazy stuff. And those kinds of locations, even if I wanted to bring a wireless shot into there, you know, you've got, you know, all these different mountain ranges that are in between there. So it's not even like you're shooting just mountaintop to mountaintop. You've got, you know, bends and curves and turns, mm. and it's down inside of this gully in a ravine. And the only thing you see is the night sky. So satellite's pretty much your only option at that point. Uh, okay. So topology is your enemy there. But the when working with some of the satellite companies, what we usually can offer, though we haven't been asked to as of yet, would be those backhaul services. Because no matter what, mm-hmm. even with satellite technologies, you know, they're shooting up and they're relaying off of that satellite. It comes back down into another base station, gets regen, sent up, comes back down. And that's when it finally gets to kind of its end destination, typically speaking, is it's going to kind of shoot up, back down and across, right? So at those regen stations, there's monitoring, there's there's bandwidth limitation needs, or even expanding out the amount of bandwidth you've got that's coming into a particular region would be something we'd be able to help them out with. Mm-hmm. Man, there's a lot more we could talk to. Like we had this fascinating discussion at Nanog about some of the OSPF design challenges you have because of some of the tower, uh, the the physical limitations you're bound to, and where you're having to route signal to. But uh, but man, we just didn't have time to get into that conversation today. But I do have one more question for you, Bradley, which is about uh, your edge design because you've mentioned you're backhauling from a tower via fiber or or whatever the circumstance is back into some kind of a data center, some kind of a, of a ground-based facility where you've got connectivity to the rest of the world. Can you talk about what that those facilities are like? Is it like a, like a Telco's regional central office or uh, what was that all about? Oh, God, you pick it. 
we've got some of these locations are literally a casino that lets us on the roof. And then there's fiber available that goes in here and that backhauls into the data center uh, over fiber. And then there's some locations that are, we have fiber that's sitting at a water tank in Battle Mountain. So <laughs> I'm telling you, we ordered the circuit, brought the, you know this fiber connection in into a water tank in Battle Mountain so that we could bring up point to multi-point uh, a access points off of that water tank and bring you know better services into the area. Huh. Uh, we've got fiber located at you know a volleyball court in Carson City that we have more services at, and we give you know internet to the community over there. Um, so it's 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 pretty varied. Most of the time, it was you know what's something tall that we can get fiber at that location, or, or we have a customer that's offered up the ability to put things on the roof, even if it is just as like a, a relay point and not necessarily point to multi-point, just somewhere to backhaul out of. We've got a few of those as well. They're just businesses that are allowing us some space on the roof so that we so, can give them so, a discount. So you're backhauling to a, a myriad of locations across the area that you serve then? Yes, absolutely. We've got about 250 locations. Okay. From each of those little sites, then you backhaul to, you've mentioned the data center. So there's one major DC where you've got, I'm assuming, a lot of routing gear and uh, internet connectivity, uh, kind of exchange point kind of stuff. Absolutely. We've got two data centers that we're at. So there, we have the data center that's kind of in our backyard. Um, and that's where most of our traffic is coming back to. And it's just from a geographic standpoint, that makes the most sense. And then we do a lot of peering at like core sites in, in uh, San Jose. So we're at Market Street over there. And so we'll, we'll like, we actually have two egress points from uh, redundancy standpoints so that we've got more than one provider and some of those things mm -hmm. that are in aggregate. And then we do, uh, we're in the actual exchange over in San Jose so that we can offload some of the traffic on there and we'll backhaul it out of the data center over to San Jose okay. using a wave circuit. So for the smaller sites that you had did you i was talking over you did you say 150 sites you've got the 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 little we have about 250 pop locations 250. okay in the 250 pop locations that as i'm thinking about this from an architecture perspective could be one of your cost centers you can't be putting in super heavy duty gear in all of those it would be cost prohibitive can you just or i'm guessing it would be can you describe what you've got in each of those locations to uh to bring in those you know that connectivity yeah, in most cases, especially if it, it is coming back, and this is where <laughs> I was telling you originally about the OSPF stuff, was uh, they all kind of interconnect to each other. And so they're all touching different sections of the network all at the same time. So you don't have neat loops. You've got a spaghetti mess. Um, and in the actual POP locations equipment-wise, um, you are correct. Good doing Going too high end on the equipment, at least to start, is definitely cost prohibitive. So in the bigger sites, we'll run Cisco gear or Juniper gear. Um, but in the smaller sites where we're servicing, you know, 10 customers, Ubiquity for some switching and MyCritic for our routing, pretty much. Huh. Okay. Or Netonics for switching. Yeah, this, this keeps your costs uh, down in those sites. So you can stand up a pop without having to drop you know, six figures just to, to get the thing off the ground. Correct. And, and primarily what we are, what we look for in kind of that route switch equipment is I'm going to bring this traffic back to the data center and deal with it from there. I have to route due to the limitations on the fiber itself, depending on which provider you're with. You only have so many MAC addresses. So you pretty much have to route at every fiber pop. And so you're pretty much trying to get all your traffic back to those fiber pops and then tunneling it back to the data center in order to offload it so that you keep any of the actual routing minimalized for 
you know, your pop locations or your smaller routers. Uh, okay. You end up having to design uh, very constraint-based design. You can't just design this ideal thing that does exactly what you want. You've got restrictions like like equipment cost. You've got restrictions like only so many MAC addresses that you can use in a particular fiber pop. And so having to design around those constraints to make it all work. Yeah, that's yeah. where the biggest challenges lie. So, you know, when you're looking at, like, even if I want to break out the OSPF areas or some of the other pieces, it turns into a giant mess because you've got different, all these different elements that are actually routing. And then they're also interconnected from, you know, your, your east-west paths might be interconnected from a north path just because that's what you can see. And you're trying to make that, that redundant connectivity. And so if you've got all of those that are talking to each other, then they all need to exist within the backbone area and you can't break it up anymore. Mm. So you're pretty much stuck with, you know, bringing everything back as much as you can. And then that's why we run our MPLS is we, we create basically a VPLS setup and then transport a lot of that traffic back so that we're not routing it hmm. or getting as many updates, you know, on our routes whenever those backhauls are going up and down from the weather or whatever else is hitting. Hmm. <laughs> Horses. Horses. Yes, exactly. Horses. <laughs> So, Brad, this has been an this has been an incredible discussion. I have enjoyed every minute of this. Yes, and uh, wild horses, right? Maybe that was the highlight for sure. Um, if a network <laughs> engineer heard this, was fascinated by the, these challenges, and wants to get into the wireless ISP world, how, how would they do that? So, if you're trying to start from scratch, the the most important thing to understand is where your exit points are going to be. And to try to build based on an actual need that's in an area. So pick an area, identify that location where you're going to be able to service that area from, and then identify where your exit points are going to be. So if you're just starting out, a lot of the times their their internet connection is literally just, you know, hey, I, I, I was able to get, you know, either a fiber or, a, you know, bonded DSL or, or however they can get that connectivity. And then it's at one location and then everything branches out from there. And it's over time they're going to build. So the most important thing when you're starting is identify the locations that you want to serve and where you're going to be able to serve it from uh, long term. And always, always, always make sure your contracts are in place before setting up any gear just so that you can cover yourself later down the road. Uh, the irony of that is the people that you're going to need service from. So you have internet points and and so on, maybe don't want you to service that area because reasons competition and so on that is absolutely correct read your contracts with your provider as well for sure because a lot of providers if you don't if you're not upfront with what you're doing with it uh will definitely shut those circuits down because there's they have like a no resell clause mm -hmm. within those contracts mm -hmm. so like you can't buy you know your standard cable connection for your house or business and then throw it up and then distribute that to other people because you'd be in breach of contract now, let's say I don't want to start a wireless ISP, but I'd like to go work for one. I'm a competent network engineer, let's say. I, I, I know my Ethernet and my IP, and I've got a lot of familiarity with, uh, with routing, and I know some MPLS and so on. Can I make the leap to work for a wireless ISP, or am I going to be missing some important skills? I, honestly, the, the fundamentals are probably the most important thing if you're looking from a network engineering side is understanding same thing. I mean, I have my challenges with LLDP. I have my challenges with, you know, spanning tree or any of the other protocols that people are, are typically working with. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're still the same protocols. So I'm having a good understanding as to why I can't break everything into different areas is probably more important than knowing, 
you know, that an 11 gigahertz radio can go X amount of distance or even how to license those things. Typically, if you're going to go and work at a WISP environment, they already have people that are on staff or they've done some of this stuff before where you can pick it up and learn. I super encourage it because it's very, very narrow uh, kind of specialized field that you just you get to work on things that no other engineers are going to get to work on and deal with challenges that are going to make you a better engineer from a practicality standpoint. Yeah, so just brush up on your WHBSP. That's a wild horse butt scratch protocol. <laughs> if you want to have a lot of fun, look up the Batman protocol sometime. Oh, the Batman protocol. Okay. I don't know what that is. We'll leave that as an Easter egg for people. All right. That's right. <laughs> Bradley, are you out on the internet somewhere where people can reach out to you? LinkedIn, Twitter, you got a blog, anything like that? I am on LinkedIn. I am on Twitter, I believe, though it'd probably be impossible to find me. I don't read it too much. <laughs> if you're not even sure, I, it doesn't sound like you're there all that often. <laughs> no, almost never. I use it more to read other people's twits. Uh, very good. Well, Bradley Thompson, thank you for joining us today for this edition of Heavy Networking. Thanks for taking the time, man. I, I really do appreciate it. And if you're out there still listening, thank you for listening all the way to the end. You are an outstanding human. If you'd like to hear more from Packet Pushers, check out our Slack group, our newsletter, our community blog, and the full lineup of podcasts all at packetpushers.net. If this topic was interesting to you, you should know that uh, we have a brand new podcast series starting up, Heavy Wireless with Keith Parsons. Keith is going to be covering not just Wi-Fi, but all things wireless. And I'm assuming some of the topics that we covered today with Bradley might show up on Keith's show from time to time as well. So again, that's Heavy Wireless. It's out there in your pod catcher. Go ahead and subscribe now and get those episodes. They should start hitting in May 2023, right around the time that you're hearing this. Those Heavy Wireless shows should be landing. Now, if you go up to packetpushers.net and sign up for our other stuff, we don't ask for a thing from you. It's all free. We don't even want your contact information, all of that stuff, like the Slack group and the newsletter. Again, it's all free. Just resources to better serve you in your professional career development. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>